We've been talking, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We've been talking for a number of weeks now, and we've had several interruptions, uh, good interruptions, but we've had interruptions about the foundation of our lives and examining what is the foundation of our life. Why am I living my life? What's it founded on? Why do I get up in the morning? What motivates me to do what I do? And then the direction of this, of course, is going to begin to look at what is the foundation of this church? What is the foundation of the church? And what is the foundation of this church? What are we here to do? Why are we here? And, and in the process of that, God's been working on this through messages that we've heard, whether we realize, you realize it or not, we've been depositing things by the Spirit of God. And today is another step in that direction, but it was triggered by something which I'll share later on in the message, I believe, something that happened this week. And that, well, sometimes you need events to wake you up. It's like an, a spiritual alarm clock. And you know certain things, but something happens and you wake up and realize, oh my goodness, this is where we are. This is what needs to be done. And this is what the, what the church needs today, especially in the United States, and we all need it, and I believe here we need it also in, in our lives that we need it. So Hebrews chapter 10, while you're there, I've got to turn to it. Hebrews is one of my favorite books in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to start, I may have given the translator something later than this, Yeah, I did. We're going to start in verse 19, not verse 23. Therefore, brethren, having boldness... And I just talked about that that we have a high priest. They understood, because this was written to the Hebrews, Hebrews that had been dispersed through persecution into Asia Minor and other parts of the world outside of Jerusalem and Judea. They'd been dispersed and they were in danger of backsliding into the old habits under the law of believing in Christ plus the law. Moses plus Christ, because it was so ingrained in them. And when, when things have been ingrained in you as, and have come from generations of having it ingrained in your family, it's often very hard to let go of those things. And some of you have come out of religious traditions that you're still struggling with. Now, you may feel guilty because you don't do some things that you were trained you needed to do, and yet you don't find them in the Bible. And so this is what they were struggling with. And, and so what the writer of Hebrews is bringing them back to is to realize that there's a new priest. They, were, they understood what a priest was, and many of you were raised in traditions where you had priests that you were taught to respect. But, but the writer's telling them that we now have a high priest that is the fulfillment of what those priests were supposed to be. And it's Jesus, and he's seated at the right hand, and he is interceding for you. He's representing you in the presence of the Father, and he's a faithful high priest. He's just said in chapter 4, in verse 16, that he's, he can be a faithful high priest because he's been tempted in all ways as we are. He understands what it's like to struggle against things, and yet he was faithful. He didn't fail where you and I have failed. Therefore, he can represent us to the Father compassionately and yet effectively because he never failed and yet he can understand the struggles that we go through. Having said all that and then talked about this new covenant we have starting in the beginning of chapter 10, it's a, it's a better covenant founded on better promises. He goes through that comparison and talks about with, because we have this faithful high priest. And now in verse, 20, in verse uh, 
19, he says, Therefore, because we have a faithful high priest, brethren, having boldness or confidence to enter the holiest, that's the presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest, that's Jesus, over the house of God, because he's our faithful high priest, verse 22, let us draw near with a true or sincere heart in full assurance or confidence of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil consciousness. That means a consciousness of sin, a guilt consciousness. Having our hearts sprinkled from a guilt consciousness and our bodies washed with pure water. This is where we're going to get to. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So this is what He's done for us. This is the way that He's opened for us. We're encouraged to enter into what He's paid for with us with full confidence and assurance. Not to just tread in lightly, well, I don't know if I belong. I don't know. I mean, after all, I know how my life was like. I know what I'm like. No, He says, because you have a faithful high priest, because of Him, you can come in boldly. And with not confidence in you, confidence in your high priest and what he has done for you, not just who he is, but what he has done for you, confidence in him, we are to come with our hearts sprinkled so we're not thinking about how guilty we are in our hearts, but thinking but God that we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We're to come with confidence, but because of that, he's going to give us some admonishments, which means just because you've come doesn't mean there aren't things we need to hold on to. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Notice he's not saying, hold on because you're faithful. Hold on because he's faithful. Hold on because he's faithful. There's a phrase that our founding pastor, Pastor Sam, used to have that just has come back to me lately because there's sometimes in your life when you don't know what else to do. And he says, when you get to that spot, what you do is you tie a knot in the end of the rope and you just hold on. <laughs> you just hold on. If you hold long, long enough, he'll get you out because he's faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our fit hope without wavering. So our job is to continue to hold on to the confession of our hope in Him. The words that come out of your mouth are so important. The words, why you need to memorize some scriptures. Because when you want to have other words come out of your mouth and your brain's screaming at you about things, then there's words, there's scriptures that come out of me in the middle of the night that I have just gone over and over and over again. I'll wake up in the middle of the night with verses coming out of my mouth. Why? Because I've deposited them in my heart. Hold on to the confession of your hope. Our hope in who? Our hope in our high priest, that he's faithful. Hold on to your confession of hope, for he is faithful. Let us consider one another. That's a little blind to us. It means let us watch over one another. See, it's not... We're in this together. We're in this together. And all of us go through times when we're weaker than other times. All of us go through times when we get discouraged. And that's why we need one another to, to take care of each other. And so this word consider means to watch out for, be aware of around you. 
And you, as you walk in here sometime, or even at home, you may, somebody may come to you, and you don't know why. Or, may, call them. Send them a card. Reach out to them somehow. And just acknowledge that you know they're there. You never know when the Spirit of God's using you to lift somebody up, to encourage you somehow. But if we go through our time as Christians, if we go through our life here as members of Faith Christian Center, just focus on, I come to church, I get my blessing, and then I leave, and all I'm fine, I want to make sure I'm just getting my seat before somebody else gets there. I go through the routine I've got to go through, and my eyes are only on my own agenda for the day, then I'm not observing who's around me. I'm not aware of who's around me. Can't tell you the number of times I've had some. I walk in here and somebody comes up and just says the right thing to me, and just you know that blessed me, that encouraged me, and 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 so and we can we need to do that for one another. But to do that, we have to be aware of one another, not just walking around what's going on in my life. What do I need? But what do, what what just to be aware of people. And as you're looking around and aware of people, then the Spirit of God can begin to direct you, and give you because He's the one that does this. So let us consider, be aware of one another. To do what? In order to stir up love and good works. The word stir up is a stronger word than it is in the New It's to provoke, prod, inspire. It requires something that's active. So the, the writer of Hebrews is saying here that although the way's been open to us to come into the presence of God, that there's a battle that's going on to, to, for us, to, they're being tempted to let go of certain things. And therefore, we need to encourage one another. We need to stir up one another. We need to sometimes provoke one another. There may be people God brings into your life to provoke you. I never thought of this this way before. To provoke to love. You don't have to be provoked to love with the only people around you are the loveliest people in the world. And they all agree with you and they love you and they think you're the most wonderful thing since sliced bread. You know, there's no challenge to love there, but sometimes God brings people, God brings people, God brings people into your life to provoke you to love, to challenge you to love. See, we have this false idea that, that when we become Christians, what that means is the way just opens up and everything becomes easy in our life. Well, if you think that, you haven't been saved for very long. Jesus said the way is narrow and it's difficult because there are challenges along that way. But those challenges strengthen us if we hold on to our confession of hope without wavering. Provoked to love and good works. So apparently we need to be provoked to love people. And we need to be provoked sometimes, stirred up to good works. So there's a purpose in the Word of God sometimes to stir us up. In fact, I was reading this morning in 2 Timothy in, Peter's, in, in Paul's admonition to his young son in the faith who was near the end of Paul's ministry in life while he was in prison, the second time most likely. Timothy was struggling. He was the pastor of the church of Ephesus most likely at the time. And Paul had to challenge him and say, you know, you know you've not been given a spirit of fear. Timothy would Timothy was apparently timid. He was intimidated by people, older people, some maybe some stronger people. And he challenged him, and one of the things he challenged him, he says, you need to preach the word, rebuke, correct. I mean, that's just, you know, we don't hear that a lot in church anymore. 
but you know, being told things that are, you're, you're blessed, you're empowered, and all those are good things, but the Word of God admonishes us to be corrected sometimes. And this is what the Apostle Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, is doing here. He's challenging them. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. I want to say something. I've never done this before. It came to me this morning. So for a moment, I'm not talking to you that are here because you're not forsaking the assembly because you're here. But I want to talk to our television audience right now because we're being filmed right now for television. And I'm aware that we have a number of people that watch this program weekly because you're shut-ins and you cannot get to church. And we're grateful that we're able to bring this program to you and bring the Word of God to you. But there's some of you out there that use television as an excuse not to go to church. Because you think, well, that way I can, this is what I want. I don't want to go to church where all the hypocrites are, so I'm going to stay home and be a hypocrite. (laughs) But the Word of God admonishes us to not forsake the assembling together of the brethren. And look what he says here. He says, all the more, and this is what we're going to look at today, all the more as you see that day approaching. But we're to exhort one another. It's hard for us to exhort you if you're sitting at home watching television. If you have to be home because you're shut in, then we're blessed to be able to bring it to you. If you're a member of another church, then you need to go to that other church. But if you're not a member of another church, you need to be in a church because in the day we're in now, we need one another. And we need you and you need us because we exhort one another. Well, now I'm back talking to all of us, all right? All the more as you see the day approaching, and there's a number of verses where, where, where in the New Testament where it talks about the day, because there is coming a day, and we'll look at this at the end if we get to it today. All right, see the day approaching. Now, what he gets into here, I don't want to spend the time to get into because it gets complicated. Starting in verse 26, he talks about sinning willfully. He's talking about backsliding. He's talking about being so slack and not holding on to your confession of hope that you begin to drift away and eventually wander away. And I don't want to get into what that means or how that's happened. But it's not something to be afraid of, but it's something to be aware of that if you don't hold on to your confession of hope, if we don't hold on to one another, because you, I'm sure many of you that have been here know people right now that not only no longer come here, they don't go anywhere. In fact, they don't pray anymore. They don't read their Bibles anymore. They've just slidden back away. And there's a very stern warning here about that. This is why we need to hold on to one another. We need to be aware of one another. We need to pray for one another. We're going to pick up in verse 35. Now, I want to stop here a second because what we're going to talk about today is that in this process of holding on to our confession of hope, in this process of not what we're going to look at, not throwing away your confidence, we're not just sitting here, you know, sitting on the beach on a nice sunny day, you know, hearing the ocean lap up against the... We're in a war, and we're learning about that on Wednesday nights. 
we're in a war. So we have an enemy out there that is going to try to distract you. We have an enemy out there that's going to try to wear you down. We have an enemy out there that is very skilled and knows you very well, knows your weaknesses, knows your tendencies, knows what it takes to try to discourage you, and he will work on you to try to discourage you, to dissuade you, to wear you out, to get you distracted more than anything else, and so that you will let go of the very thing that you're holding on to, which is what your confidence comes from. And so he says here in verse 35, I can't tell you the times that this verse comes back to me. Therefore, do not cast away or throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So our confidence before God, our confidence in Him, not ourselves, our confidence in His Word, our confidence in the work that He does in the church, all that confidence is very important to hold on to it. And that's our part. God's part is to be faithful. Our part is to hold on to that confidence. And this is one of the things that our enemy is after. This is one of the things that Satan is after, is your confidence. And one of the ways he'll work is to get you to look at yourself because he wants you to try to have confidence in yourself. And this is talking about having confidence in God, not in you. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Some translations say an exceeding great reward. So there's a great reward if we just don't let it go. If we just hold on to our confidence in God, hold on to the confidence of the hope that's set before us, then if we do that, there's a reward to it that's coming. All right. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. I don't like that word. I, I don't like the word endurance because it implies several things. First of all, it implies I've, I've got to go through something I don't want to go through. I don't have to endure a piece of cheesecake. I don't have to endure something that I enjoy. I don't, that's not enduring it, that's enjoying it. It begins with the same first two letters, but it's, it's enjoy. I don't endure things I enjoy. I, in fact, I'd like to kind of draw it out. So endure automatically implies this isn't fun. There's pressure in this. And the second thing about endurance that I don't like either, it implies time. It's not something that's going to be over in a few minutes. Because, you know, I can put up with almost anything for a few moments, but if I don't know how long it's going to go on, if I don't know what it's going to cost, what I've got to go through, I just, that that's not, doesn't sound like fun to me. But, you know, we're not called to fun. We're not here for fun. There's nothing wrong with fun unless that's why you're living your life, unless that's the foundation of your life. We have need of endurance. Now, We're not going to turn there, but over in Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us where endurance comes from. He says, I glory in in tribulation because tribulation produces endurance. Tribulation means trouble. It produces endurance. Well, it doesn't do it automatically any more than the weights in my basement produce muscles. Unless I go down there and pick them up and exert pressure against them. So tribulation, trials that come into your life don't automatically produce endurance unless you begin to apply your faith against them. And as you apply your faith 
against the pressure of those circumstances, you develop something, which is where I was originally going to go with this message, you develop something that Peter talks about as more precious than gold. And that's the trying of your faith, the testing of your faith, the strengthening of your faith. See, we've seen faith in this generation so much as how we receive our blessings from God. We've seen faith in this generation so much of how we receive healing, how we are blessed, how God works in our life. We've seen it, and that's true, but the ultimate purpose of faith is something far more important. And this is what we've so often missed. You have need of endurance. Endurance comes by tribulation that you apply your faith against, that you stand against the tribulation. And this is why experienced people walking with the Lord, they're a tremendous help to us because we've seen the things that they've come through and they're still standing. This is why it's so important to have a church that has the younger generation blended together with the older generation because the older generation just being around, just being around proves something about the faithfulness of God. 62 years of marriage proves something about the faithfulness of God. It's living testimony about the faithfulness of God coming through trials and tribulations. And Paul is such a great example of this because he says in the end of Romans chapter 8, I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded because I've been through it all. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other created thing can ever be able to separate me from the love of God that was given to me in Christ Jesus. I'm persuaded because they've all come against me and they've never been able to keep God from loving me and from my knowing His love for me. Wow, that's encouraging. And you look at the things He went through and He stood strong. At the end of his ministry, he looks back and writes to the apostle, writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy and says, all of Asia fell away. That's the churches of Ephesus. That's all those churches that he gave his life for. They backslid. But you don't hear Paul bemoaning that and saying, what did I do all this for? He says, they're laid up for me a crown of glory and for all those who look forward to his coming. His eyes were not on what he went through. His eyes were not on the circumstances. His eyes were on the hope that was laid before him. And he held on to his confession of hope. And he did not throw away the confidence. He did not throw it away because he knew that at the other end of it, there's a great, there's a great. And when God says great, he's talking great. There's a great reward. You understand this life in compared to eternity is... It's a hand's breadth, is what the Bible says. It's nothing. Whatever you're going through right now, however overwhelming it may look like, whatever the future may look like it holds for you, that's not your future. That's the time when this earth... And if everything went completely wrong, it's only your time on this earth. And then you have eternity which was based on what you did on this earth with that time. And that's the perspective we've lost. And that's the perspective that Paul kept going back to. And that's the perspective that keeps you holding on to your confidence of the hope. Because when we're never thinking of the reward, 
or we're not thinking about the reward that's at the other end, then we're easily distracted. But what do you think motivates those Olympic athletes to get up every day at four in the morning and go through the routines that they got to go through and regulate their diet when everybody else is eating what they want to eat and, and, and go through the things with their body? Why? They have one goal in mind. They're thinking four years from now, I'm going to stand on that highest platform and they're going to put a medal around my neck that's gold. Paul refers to this in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 9. He says, they labor and did all that for just a laurel wreath, which is what they didn't have gold medals back in those days. They just used a wreath that they got. They did all of that just to obtain. They have a goal in mind. They have a prize in mind and they pay whatever price is necessary to get there that makes them different from everybody else but they never lose sight of that vision. I'm sure there are mornings they get up and they don't want to get up. They're just like you and me. There are times that they're going through times when they just feel they don't feel like it. They're, they're tired, but they make themselves do what they don't think they can do. Why? What motivates them is there's a prize that's set before them. And they don't ever let go of that hope. They see it. They can taste it. And because of that, they have a vision that drives them on. And that's what made the Apostle Paul so successful. And that's what the church needs to get hold of again. And that's where we're headed. All right. For you have, verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, not while, not during, after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while he who is coming will come and he will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. Those who have been made just or righteous shall live by faith. Not just say by faith, live by faith. And if anyone draws back, my soul takes no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now chapter 11 is all about what faith is and examples of faith. So let's go over in there. I want to show you something in here. We're going to look at verse 8. Because here's kind of the hall of fame of faith. You've got the original found fathers. You've got, uh, talks about how by faith we understand that the worlds were framed. By faith is the only way we can understand the things of God. And now he comes down to Abraham in verse 8. Now Abraham, when God called him, was a pagan. He lived in what's now, was then, became Babylon, which is now Iran and Iraq. He lived in that area, and he lived among a people that worshipped the moon. So he had no relationship with God. God speaks to him and tells him to leave where he is and go to a place he'll tell him when he gets there. And that took faith, but it took more faith to go tell his wife. Imagine telling your wife, I've heard from God, and they don't know who God is. Oh, that's nice. And what did he say? He says, we're moving. Oh, great. Where are we going to? I don't know. Well, well, you know, where you, I, all I know is we'll know he'll tell us when we get there. And she had to follow him based on his faith. So there must have been a certainty that he had that caused her to follow him. So Abraham is the first example we're going to look here. We're going to look at a particular aspect of this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in a, the land of promise. So when he got there, when he got to the land that he was, God promised to him, even when he got there, he dwelt there, this is what we're going to look at, as if he were in a foreign country, dwelling in tents 
with Isaac, his son, and then Jacob, his grandson, the heirs with him of the promise. Now let's stop there a second. It's one thing to use a tent to camp in when you're going somewhere. But when they got to their destination, the place that God had called them and promised them, while they're there, they're dwelling in tents. And this was their place they were promised. They were dwelling in tents. Now let's look at what a tent is. We'll go on to read a couple of verses and then we'll come back and explain this. Verse 10. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So Abraham is called by God to leave his homeland and go to a place God promised to give him. And when he got to that place, he pitched his tents there. And he pitched his tents. Now what is a tent? How does a tent differ from a house? A tent is temporary. It can be blown over easily and it has no foundation. There's a point in here that the Spirit of God is making. I'd never seen until about a year ago. I was meditating on these verses and suddenly it jumped out on me. Now, and I'm seeing some of this as we're going along now. Abraham is at the place where God's called him to go. It's not like he's still got other places to go. This is the place he's called him to be. But while he's there, Abraham has an attitude about that place that this is not his final destination. This is not a permanent home. So instead of building houses with foundations, he lives in tents that are temporary. Why? Verse 10. For he waited for a city. He wasn't satisfied with this place. He waited for a city which has foundations. Foundations imply something permanent. Foundations imply something stable. The first thing they do to build a home around here is to pour a foundation. Now, in other parts of the country, they pour a slab, but it's the foundation of the house. It implies it's not going to move next week. You decide where on that plot of land you want the house. They stake it out, and then the contractor, the cement contractor, comes and he pours the foundation. And you better have decided that's where you want the house. Because if you come out next week and say, no, I really don't want it there, I want it over there, they've got a major problem because once the foundation is poured, that's where you're going to be. That's where the house is going to be. But if all you do is erect a tent, you say, you know what, I think I'd rather live on the other side of this lot, under the trees, it's no big deal. You just up, pull, pull up the stakes and you move it over and you put it down. Why? Because it was not a permanent dwelling. And Abraham, when he came to the place that God had called and ordained him to come to, instead of establishing a permanent foundation, as if this was his final, ultimate goal and resting place, he lived in tents. Because he wasn't seeking this place. His hope was not on this place. He was hoping for, trusting in, motivated by a city that has foundations. 
that's permanent and who's, we're going to look on, whose builder and maker is God. Let's go on. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, that means he was, he was, he was impotent in his body, and from, was born as many as the stars of the sky and the multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith. I used to read that and say, well, wait a minute. These are in here as examples of faith. And they died in faith without having received the promises. But yet, wait a minute, we just read where the promise that God made to him was that you shall have a son, you and Sarah. You're too old, she's barren, but I'm going to give you a son by the two of you coming together. And they believed God and Isaac was, they conceived and Isaac was born. And yet he's saying, but they didn't receive the promise. Because Isaac was the temporary promise. But the ultimate promise was beyond Isaac. The ultimate promise where their hope was, was beyond Isaac. Their perspective, their focus wasn't what they had right now. Their perspective, their motivation, what got them going, what kept them strong, what they held on to when things didn't... If you read the story in Genesis, you find out it wasn't exactly just one downhill slot, you know, roll once God promised him. Abraham doubted. He laughed at God. She laughed at God at one point. They tried to help God out in the promise. So it wasn't just, you know, immediately they hear God's Word and they're strong in faith. They had to grow in faith, trial and error and grow in faith. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. I love it when you get to Romans 4 because God's testimony after they went through all the struggles but got there is Abraham didn't waver in unbelief. God forgot all the failures and he just saw the end result. Oh, that blesses me. Oh, that blesses me. God's testimony in the New Testament is he didn't waver in unbelief. But he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what God promised he was also well able to perform. Well, he wasn't there at first, but he grew in it. And though he wavered, God saw him where he was at the end. Because Abraham's perspective, his focus, his goal wasn't Isaac. That was an intermediate goal. That was a short-term goal. And so God did fulfill that promise, but the ultimate promise that he held on to in his heart, the ultimate hope that he held on to, he didn't experience while he was here. We're talking about the ultimate purpose of faith. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar, they were assured or confident of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they're seeking a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they'd come out of, they would have had an opportunity to return. We'll come back to that. That's important. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So their hope... Their ultimate confidence 
was that God had prepared a permanent place for them, a place, a city, whose building and maker is God. And their eye was on that prize. Their hope was in that. And let me tell you, anything you put your hope in in this world can be taken away from you, but that can't be taken away from you. Satan has no access to that hope. Satan has no access to that hope. Now, where does this apply to us? I'm going a different direction because I've seen something this morning I've never seen before. Abraham was called to leave his home and go to the place where God would tell him. When he got there, he arrived at his destination and his assignment on the earth. When you came to Christ, or when you were born, God had an assignment for you. Before you were born, it says in the Bible, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, that God planned for you before the foundation of the earth. You were no accident. You may have been an accident in your parents' mind, but you were never an accident in God's mind. God planned for you, personally for you, before the foundation of the earth. And you have come to this place today. Yes, you've made decisions and you've made choices, but God directed you. He directed your steps. You're only in Christ because God directed you into Christ. He watched over you. The Bible says in Psalm 139, He watched you being formed in your mother's womb. I don't care what they say today about when a fetus becomes a child. The Bible says God watched those first cells come together and knew who you were. He watched over that process. Watched you come together, waiting for the moment you would come forth. You think your parents waited for you. God waited for you. Then he waited further. He waited for you to come to him and to Christ when you were really born again into the family of God. And he had a purpose for your life, an assignment, and part of that assignment is here, part of what, the, of what God wants to do here. And this church is an assignment for part of the body of Christ here. And you found your place, and some of you may still be looking, but there's a place for you that God has for you in the body of Christ to take your place and to do what you are, your purpose, your destiny is. But that's not the end of life. That's not the ultimate fulfillment of life. That's like Abraham coming to the place where God promised him and then settling there. But what we do is we come to that place where we can become Christians, we become saved, we become part of the body of Christ, we may be even working in the church, and we, we see that as everything, our permanent place. And then we discover that the place we built that looks so permanent beginning to get cracks in it. There's a little dry rot showing up, and things are beginning to look as if they're aging. <laughs> My mind's going in 14 different directions with all this. And we try to patch it up, and that's okay. We paint it up, and that's okay. But we're fighting a losing battle. Because it's... I'm talking about your body. It's, it's, getting, it's getting older. I looked at a picture of myself yesterday of only... Well, there's one in my study in there of, of when I came on staff 16, 15 years ago. And 
my hair was a different color then. I don't know what happens. My wife must have sprayed it white sometime during one night. <clears throat> no, I'm just teasing. But it's it just suddenly, be, you know, I, I, that's, and there's not as much as there was. And my face doesn't look quite the way it looked then. There are a few... Mary Ann Brown used to have this expression, those of you who remember her, it was, and you've heard this before, everything that used to be north went south. <laughs> and those of you who are, whose, whose dwellings are getting in that state begin to understand what I'm talking about. And, and you know, it's okay to, to, it's okay to, you know, it's okay to try to change the, 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 the siding and, you know, you know, do all that to improve the looks of it a little bit. That's nothing wrong with that. But it's a losing battle ultimately. And here's the problem. When we invest our life in that, when we invest our identity in that, when we invest our hope in this life, when this is what our life is, this is where we pour all our life and our energy into and all our hope into it, we're pouring into something that's like a sieve that leaks. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul talking about this, because right at the end of chapter 4, he says... Here's what his secret was. He said, For we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen, that's this natural world, are temporary. But the things that are not seen, that's the spirit man inside of you, the spirit realm, that is eternal. Because in the verse before, he says, For this outward man is perishing, but my inner man is being renewed and getting stronger day by day. Then he goes into chapter 5, and of course Paul didn't write it in chapters and verses. It's a continuation of the same idea. He talks about this body as being a tent, and he talks about putting the tent off. And he says, and therefore, the, the, you know, and therefore we walk by faith and not by sight. Your body is just a tent. It's a temporary dwelling. Your life here on this earth is a temporary life on this earth, and mine too. And we have an assignment, so we've come, hopefully, to that assigned place that Abraham came to. But when he got there, he didn't build a permanent home as if this was his ultimate destination. He lived there in tents, which means it was easy to take up and move if he needed to move it. I remember when, when we were married, we moved to, to Boston, I went to law school, and we lived there for 10 years. It became our home. And she left her parents in Ohio and I left my family in Philadelphia and we moved up here and it became in 10 years our home. And then we got saved and then after a while God dealt with me about going into the ministry and I'll never forget walking out of that large law firm and I'll never forget walking out of our house not knowing where we were going. We just knew the destination was Tulsa and I really didn't know where that was. We'd been there once but I thought, what God did, what did I do wrong and if you're from the Midwest, bless you, but for, for a Northeasterner, it was, uh, you know, it's not where I was happy. The roads are all straight, there are no hills, there are no trees, you know, and there's no water that comes up and down with a tide. And I grew up by that, so that's what I was comfortable with. Others grew up in that part of the country, and that to come here is strange for them. So it's a matter of, you know, what you're used to. But my point is, I, had to, I walked out of all of that. I just walked away from it. The people I worked with thought I was crazy. The partner that I worked under was crying when I left, scared for me. And God had to explain to me, said, God, I don't want to hurt him. He says, the difference is you've heard from me. And faith comes by hearing. You have faith to do this because you've heard from me. He didn't hear me tell you to go. So he's looking at this in the natural. 
And so we picked up and we just moved, not really knowing where we're going. Everything we belonged to was in the back of this blue station wagon, including our dog, who was really wondering what was going on. Kids and everything was in the car. We, on the way out, when we get out there, she discovers she's pregnant with twins. Our life was just suddenly uprooted. But I never felt closer to God. I never felt more confidence in God because, you see, I couldn't build my life around that law practice. I couldn't build my life around our beautiful home in, in the suburbs of Boston. I couldn't build my life around that income. I couldn't build my life around that because it was temporary. It's not why I'm here. I can't build my life around this because there may come a time when God says, your time here is over. You're to do something. And there will only come a time when my time on the earth is over. And you can't hold on to it. But if you live your life trying to hold on to it, you'll never fulfill what you're here to do. So Abraham comes to this place that's his assignment. It's his place. It's his purpose. And yet, he doesn't build a permanent dwelling there. Why? Because it's not his goal. That's not his vision. He's holding on to the confession of his hope, which is not in how well things are going for him here. Not in how well he was... And he was prosperous but he was not holding on to that prosperity here. That was not the purpose of his life. He was holding on to what the city that he could see by faith that God had for him, a permanent dwelling. And when that becomes your perspective, Satan begins to lose his hold on you because he can't hold you when that's what motivates you. He can't discourage you when that's what motivates you because he can't change that. He can't change that. Okay. Hold fast your confession of hope. Well, we're not going to finish this today. Let's go over to um, Matthew chapter 6. How do we apply this in our everyday life? Verse 19. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot break in and steal. That's what we're just saying. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. What he's talking about here and what he's about to talk about is what your heart is seeking after. What is your foundation of your heart? What is your heart motivated by? What is the goal of your life? What are you living for? What drives you? What is your heart invested in? And this is where we have to be very careful because if we're not purposeful in this, listen carefully to me, if we're not purposeful in this, if we don't intentionally sow our heart into something, the world around us is vying for the attention of your heart, trying to sow things into your heart. Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. Not only did the sower sow into the heart, but the Satan tries to sow into your heart also. And the devices that he uses, the seeds he uses, are very tempting and deceptive if you don't understand. And so this is what the subject is here. We need to understand that. We need to understand this as we get into the next verse. Because it looks strange until you take it apart. For the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if, if you, therefore, your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? That sounds like a puzzle or a riddle. So let's take it apart. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. Here's what he's talking about here. He's using your physical eyes as an example to us of what the function of your heart is. What your eyes are to your physical body, your heart is to your soul and your spirit. And he's saying here, if your eye is good, the word is healthy. If your eye is healthy, I want to get the wording just right. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, some translations say evil, but there's two different words for evil in the Greek. One means evil by nature, the other means diseased or deformed or, dist- or, or distorted, and this is the latter. This means diseased. If your eye is diseased, then your body will be full of darkness. Now, what's he talking about there? Your eye is the only opening in your body by which light gets into your mind, into your brain. Your ears are opening to the world, but they're not, they don't detect light. They detect sounds. But your eyes tell you what's really here or not. So you can tell that this morning I'm wearing a red tie. You may not be able to see it, but it's got uh, gray diamond tape, tape things on it. And if I got closer, you, you would know that because your eye can see it. And the reason your eye can see it is the light that's in this room reflects off of it and, if, and some of those light beams go through the opening of your eye, the pupil of your eye, and they're displayed on your retina, which then converts that into electrical impulses that your brain says, oh, Pastor John has a red tie on this morning. And the only reason you know that is because your eyes are accurately picking up the light that's transmitted off of this tie. But if you have cataracts, or your eye is diseased or deformed in some way, there may be light getting in, but it's distorted. And those of you that have to wear glasses, especially strong glasses, you know what I'm talking about. You just take it off. You can see objects out there, but you wouldn't be safe to drive home without your glasses on. Why? Because you can't accurately determine whether something's coming towards you or away from you or whether it's a car or whether it's just, you know, something else on the side of the road. And so you have to have corrective lenses to, so that you, the light that's getting in your eyes is reliable. So he's using our eyes and what this principle that we understand as an example of what it takes for your eye to be something you can trust with what it's seeing. All right? Now he's going to go and talk about the inner eye, the eye of your spirit, which is your heart. He says, but if the eye is evil or diseased, your whole body is full of darkness. Oh, there may be light getting in, but he can't trust it. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now go back to verse 21. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. 
Whatever you treasure, that means value. Whatever you allow yourself or purpose to value, your heart will eventually treasure it. Your heart will be given over to it. There was a moment in time, and I can tell you when it was and where it was, when I was visiting my wife. She wasn't my wife then. And I liked her. I met her. She was a blind date. I liked her. I met her. And the second, this was the second time I think we'd, we'd been together. We were with friends, and I was in the back seat of the car with her. We were, they were taking us around and showing us something. And there was something looking at her. And then we went and, and had a Coke together. And there was a moment where I was consciously, I gave my heart. I let her in my heart. I put her in a place in my heart that she wasn't before. A word of wisdom to you younger people, or even some of you older people that are single. This is something I've counseled our single sons on. When you're dating somebody, there comes a point where you choose. It's an act of your will. It can be in a moment's time, and if you're not aware of it, you don't realize you did it. But there's a moment when you choose to give that your heart to that person, to let them in your heart. And the moment you do that, it changes how you see everything. Suddenly, all those imperfections that you could see otherwise, oh, but he's so handsome. Oh, but you don't understand, Pastor. He, I know he doesn't have a job, and I know, I know he doesn't work. I know, but you don't understand, Pastor. He is just, oh, he's everything I've ever dreamed for. Suddenly, when that heart's given, listen carefully, when that heart's given, you go blind to everything else. So men, women, single men, single women, before you choose to give that heart away, make sure that's God's person for you. Because once you give your heart away, your reasoning goes out the window. Oh, I can do that. Then you'll be the first. (laughs) So the point here is, there's a point even in human relationships where we put that person, we give a treasure to them. We give them that place in our heart where we treasure them. And what Jesus is saying is, and the heart is the discerner of spiritual things as the eye is the discerner of natural things. And so Satan understands that. So he's trying to sow things into your heart so that they will have a place in your heart that's not clean, clear unto the one that needs to be in that place in your heart. So that your hope, your trust, begins to be in this world and the things of this world and this life so that we now have to have it. We have to hold on to it. We have to enjoy it. We have to have all these things in order to have stability, in order to have a foundation in my life. So we're building a house here, a home here, a permanent dwelling here, and this can't ever be permanent. But when I build my permanent home here, I've taken my eyes off of the hope that's set before me, and I've fallen into the trap that Satan has laid for me. The good news is you can tear up the foundation here, and you can move into a tent. All right. 
we'll finish this and then we'll have to finish the thing next week. No one can serve two masters. It's impossible. And by serving, he's talking what you've given your heart to. Either we'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's this world. Therefore, I say unto you, that means it's a continuation of the same idea. Do not worry about your life, what you shall eat and what you shall drink, nor your body what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not of more value than they? Are you not of more value than they? Which of you being worried can add one cubit to his stature, one inch to his height? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe or take care of you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Stop there a second. So often these verses are used, and they can be used, to give us confidence that if God takes care of the birds, if He feeds the birds, and He clothes the lily of the valley, then that gives me confidence God's going to take care of me. And that's true, Jesus is saying that, but this is not His real message. Because then all we're saying is, well, I'm seeking after those things, I'm just more confident because God's going to help take care of those things, and not, and not I have to do it on myself. And if you stop there, you'll miss the power of what Jesus is saying. God will take care of you. God does want to supply your needs. God wants us to trust Him, but ultimately He wants us to not have our foundation of our life in those things or in this world at all so that we're not distracted from the hope that's set before us. So what are we to do? What are we to look at? Look at verse 32. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. Now he brings that word back again. He's still talking about what are you seeking after. And what he's saying is Satan will use the things of this world. He'll use your natural needs, your needs for food, your clothing, the things that are really needs that you do need. We need them, but in 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 the perspective of eternity, they're nothing. If you had to go without a meal today, a thousand years from now, that wouldn't matter to you. In fact, no matter what you go through, a thousand years in eternity, a minute in eternity, it won't matter anymore. It won't matter anymore. And what Satan's deception is to get us to be so focused on this world, this life, that by focusing on it, you begin to treasure it. There's this principle I learned a long time ago. The more you look at something and the more you think about something, the more you begin to treasure it. Just think about some food. You get this picture of a piece of chocolate candy in your mind. And the more you think about it, the more you want it. But if you haven't thought about it, you don't have the desire there. Why do you... That's advertising is based on this principle. Billions of dollars are spent by major corporations. I was looking at a... At, a, at an ad the other day on TV for some food chain, I will not mention it, but I refuse to go there anymore. For years I haven't gone there. And they're talking about the special that you can get, you know, and, and I've never seen it look like that there. 
They showed this piece of chicken and this salad, and the sal- salad was green, and there was little drops of moisture on it, and the chicken was so fresh. The last time I ate there, the salad was all shriveled up, and the chicken was dried. It was not the same picture. Why? They want you to look at that, and they want you, the more you look at it, the more you want it, and you begin to give yourself to that. You desire it, and the more you desire it, the more you begin to treasure it. This is why Satan parades your needs in front of you and wants you to be, I've got to have this, I've got to have that, if I've got to have this. And it's not just physical things, it's, it's, it's this life. It's this life. Look at what he says, and we'll end with this, because we never got to the message. This is the foundation for the message. Verse 32. For after all these things the Gentiles seek, those people that have no covenant with God, they have no hope. They have no destination. They have no life after that to look forward to. They have no promise of a future. They have no city whose builder and maker is God that's waiting for them. There's a place waiting for them, but it's a place of unbelievable torment and damnation in hell. They don't have that hope laid before them. So this is all they can put their hope into. After all these things, the Gentiles seek. Those people that have no covenant of God, relation with God, that have no hope, nothing to the future to look forward to, they seek after these things. But he's saying you shouldn't be like that. But what are we to seek after? And this is what we'll pick up on next week. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek the kingdom of God. Not wait for it to come. Go after it. Sow your heart into it. Invest your life into it. Invest your finances into it. Invest your time into it. Make that your goal. Make that your ambition. Make that the purpose of why you live. Make that the foundation of your life. Seek that first. Then your heart will go to it. That will be your treasure. That will be your goal. And moths can't get into it and cut holes in it and the devil can't steal it away because that's where your heart's been sown and that is your final destination do that and all these things will be added unto you and notice here's the key we'll end on this he therefore goes on therefore don't worry about what you're going to wear and what, when we worry you only worry about losing things that are valuable to you So think back on your life, and we'll use this as kind of your assignment until next week. Just begin to look at yourself honestly this week at the things you worry about because those are things your heart treasures. The reason you're worrying about it is what's going to happen if I lose it or can't get it or, or something happens to it. And we treasure those things more than we think or treasure the kingdom of God which is our permanent foundation home that God has waiting for you. And how we do this doesn't determine where we're going, but it does determine the rewards that you get when you're there. Your works don't get you into heaven, but our obedience to do what we're here to do how faithful we are to do what our assignment here determines a great deal there. And so whether you realize it or not, you're establishing things now there. And the question is, what are we establishing? 
what are we building for ourselves there that we will be with forever when we get there? And the problem is we've invested too much of our time and energy in trying to build things here which won't last and neglected what's there which we'll live with for eternity. And we'll pick up here next week to get to the real message that this is about. Father, we thank you today for your grace and your love and your mercy. We thank you, Father, that you've not just wait till we get to heaven to find out things, but you tell us now. And we come to you, Father, and ask you by the Holy Spirit that you, we begin to take the things that were sown into our hearts today and begin to open the eyes of our understanding as we look at our own lives, not to tear them up, but we allow the Spirit of God begin to shine His light into the darkness of our own understanding or lack of understanding, that we may be able to come to the place that you've called us to, for we are well able. In Jesus' name, amen.